0: all welcome to the celtics lab podcast brought to you by fanduel the exclusive wagering partner of the clns media network i am Cameron tipped by. i'm joined by alex goldberg who's checking in from brooklyn his new apartment in brooklyn and i'm joined by dr justin quinn this is a very special edition of the celtics lab podcast because we have a very special guest this is a person that sports fans like really across the spectrum might know because jeff jeff perlman who is our guest has written about uh Bo Jackson he's written about the Lakers the Mets and so much in between so uh Jeff I'm going to welcome you in and then really dial into what we're talking about Jeff Perlman how are you I am
1: uh I'm doing okay actually I'm uh you know book research hell for the next book but that's mm-hmm. okay so this is a little break can the
0: you Mets tell us what book? you're researching yeah. or or too soon
1: uh I'm doing the uh doing the biography of Tupac Shakur so I'm doing my first non- Whoa!
0: oh you
2: know, man
1: there's non-sports book so wow so, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, to see if there's a connection to the Celtics So we can have you back on and talk about that book um,
1: he, um, he definitely heard of the Celtics
3: Yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's good enough for us um, Until then, we're here to talk about uh, your book Which eventually became an HBO show The book is Showtime, Magic, Cream, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers Dynasty Boo, parenthetically Which has now become HBO's winning time, Rise of the Lakers Dynasty And our connection there really is you can't talk about the Lakers in the eighties without talking about the Celtics in the eighties. Good enough for us, Jeff, I'll tell you, um, the show is tremendous. The source material is tremendous. So off the jump, I just like to congratulate you. I hope you're enjoying the ride because it's, it's a lot of fun as a consumer. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, you should always have, uh, if anyone ever comes to you guys and says, we want to turn whatever into an HBO show or a Netflix show or whatever show you always, you definitely always say yes, because, uh, (laughs) Just very few negatives that come out of it, you know, a couple, Mm -hmm. very few. So yeah, it's been cool. All
0: right, right, good. That's a hot tip for our listeners. Um, Here's how we're going to do this. People who listen to this podcast know that when we have big Jesus come around, we break the podcast into more traditional one-on-one interviews. So Alex is going to hop in. He's going to talk to Jeff about his background, but sports writing, and the origins of this book. Um, Then Justin, you're going to kind of bridge the gap between how the book becomes a show, and Jeff and the tail end of the program, you and I will talk about the show itself. How's that? All right, um, Alex from Brooklyn. I mean, we're here to talk about Jeff, but give people your 30 second Brooklyn update because that's exciting too, I suppose.
2: Sure. Hello, listeners. Nice to see you again. Uh, I've been kind of on and off the lab lately, and that's in large part because I've been moving my entire life to Brooklyn, New York to more seriously pursue music and other fun things like that. If you like the music at the top of the program, that's me on the bass. Band is doing stuff. Check it out. Uh, Divine Sweater is the name. Anyway, I'm here in Brooklyn now, uh, but I am still a hardcore Celtics fan which means that the Los Angeles Lakers being a topic on this podcast is confusing and strange to me. Uh, But nonetheless, here we are. I guess we have to talk about it. So um, Jeff, we're going to just kind of jump right into it. Um, So let's start with how the Lakers even became a topic of interest to you in the first place. Are you a fan? Um, Was it the 80s Lakers specifically? Or is it the Lakers more generally? Like, what do we think about this?
1: Uh, I was not a fan. I grew up in New York. I grew up a weirdly diehard New Jersey Nets fan in the 80s. And the Nets really sucked. And it was like, this is pre like Van Horn and, you know, Jason Kidd. This is Buck Williams and Otis Birdsong and Darwin Cook. Really bad. But um, I remember being a kid and every now and then Lakers Celtics would play in L.A. And they would be like live from, you know, Inglewood and see first they'd show the shot of the beach maybe they'd have like a couple of people playing beach volleyball bikinis or whatever or a couple of lifeguards whatever and then then you'd go inside the forum and they'd have the laker girls and then they'd have like you'd see like jack nicholson and diane cannon and blair underwood and then you'd see magic and you'd see bird and all the whole thing was just so freaking magical to me like really was that um i always like fancied la and fancied that time period and wanted wanted to touch that thing that was so elusive so, I just always thought about that. And no one had written like a definitive, definitive book of that era and those teams, that team. So, I just went for it. And that's how it was. It was almost like envying what I never had as a kid.
2: Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, as much as I uh, admit this begrudgingly, the Lakers are one of two iconic franchises in the NBA whose presence is arguably bigger than the sport itself, at least for some people. So, Pretty pretty reasonable to pursue that as a topic um, as a sports journalist. Speaking of sports journalism, um, you've gotten a couple of different books. Uh, obviously, you're moving into um, a non-sports journalism project now, but uh, you know you you kind of made your bones as a sports journalist. And I guess I'm wondering, first off, how did you get into sports journalism, and then what kind of sparks interest in you in pursuing? what is a really complex and involved project like how do you go from writing columns and you know writing uh you know kind of kind of standard sports journalism to doing such a really kind of thoughtful and deep research piece like this
1: uh I mean I started so I I went to high school in a tiny town in Neopack New York and um I wrote for the high school newspaper and I remember It was either my junior or senior. I think it was my senior year. I wrote a column for the high school newspaper called um, Cheerleading, Sport or Activity. And at the time, I was just this kid who, like, kind of a nerdy kid, you know, newspaper, ran track, that kind of stuff. And I remember writing a column ripping, saying that basically cheerleading was just an activity, not a sport. And the day after I wrote it or the day it came out, all the cheerleaders surrounding me and yelling at me in the cafeteria and kind of being like, wow, that." I, that was cool they actually know who I am they noticed me you know blah 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 that's a very pathetic reason to get into it all but that kind of did it for me and um, I went to University of Delaware really got the student newspaper became sports editor and editor and all that stuff and um, out of college and I love sports and out of college my first job at the Nashville Tennessean as a newspaper guy I actually started as a food and fashion writer and was really bad at it then became a music writer was really bad at it and finally they put me on high school wrestling and I covered high school wrestling for the Nashville Tennessee, and I don't want to brag and um, loved it, loved it, just loved everything about it, loved the competition and loved covering it and everything. And my dream as a kid was to write for Sports Illustrated, like the dream books was never a dream, TV show certainly was never a dream. Sports Illustrated was the dream. If you were a kid growing up in the 80s, SI was it, it was the Bible. If you were a sports fan, and um, I applied and applied and applied, and what happened, I had this moment. When I was in college, I had applied early for the NBA draft just to see what would happen. I didn't play college basketball, but I applied early as a junior for the NBA draft. And I got a letter from the league. I remember coming back to my dorm and my roommate being like, hey, Pearl, there's a there's a letter from the NBA. And I look at it and it's, dear Mr. Pearlman, as of this date, you are you have surrendered your eligibility, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And then a few weeks later, the head of security for the NBA called me and was basically like, who are you? And I'm like, well, I'm a forward to Delaware. And So when I was at the Tennessee and I, I kept applying to sports illustrated because my dream was SI and they liked my writing enough, that they said, why don't you pitch an idea? So I pitched a couple of ideas and then I pitched, well, when I was in college, I applied for the NBA draft and they said, write that. (laughs) I wrote it. And a few months later, I got hired to write for sports illustrated and I was a baseball writer at SI for a good amount of time. And a friend of mine named John Wertheim wrote a book about women's tennis, mainly about Venus and Serena. And I was like, "I, I could write a book. So I got a book deal about the 86 Mets. That was my first book. It was called The Bad Guys One. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what I was doing. The book made the New York Times list. I really love digging into a subject. I really love the intricacies of reporting, 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 tracking down people, finding little nuggets and stuff maybe other people didn't know. And uh, here I am with 10 books and a TV show. It's kind of weird.
2: Not bad. Not yeah. bad. Um, former Nashville resident myself. I read the Tennesseean sports column back in the day. Probably yeah. not when you were there, but- you just um,
1: made me feel old. I know what that secret message was probably when you were there, <laughs> meaning you're older than me. I respect that. <laughs> that I is true. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, uh, But yeah, fun newspaper. Um, so yeah. you mentioned baseball. First off, got to ask New York Yankees, Mets. Uh, do you have a side in that rivalry?
1: Well, I grew up a Mets fan. Um, but then when you cover baseball long enough, you when you cover anything long enough, you sort of lose the boom for it. You know, like yeah. I'm not I guess I'm kind of a Mets fan, but I don't really give a shit if they win or lose. Like, I don't care. I The funny thing is, when you're a baseball writer, I said this to someone the other day. In my, whatever, five years of covering baseball, I probably knew 99.5% of all MLB rosters. I could tell wow. you the Dodgers, third string catchers. I could all that stuff.
2: That's, now I probably it's not know. not legitimately really impressive. So That's what you did
1: back then. That's what it was to be a national baseball writer. You covered all these teams, and you had to swoop in, and you had to, you know... And, but now I probably know 4%. Like I just don't, I don't write that
2: much. We saw a Tani pitch. That's about it. Yeah. I recently went to a Mets game and there's, there's not a lot of juice in that rivalry at the moment. Um, Yeah. So obviously, um, you know, you wrote a book about the Los Angeles Lakers. You grew up, uh, you know, a New Jersey Nets fan. Uh, This is the Celtics lab podcast though. So we do have to talk about the Celtics. I'm curious. um, What did you kind of think of the Boston Celtics in the eighties and onward, you know, What was your impression as a Nets fan? Let's start with that.
3: Get ready for the NFL season with incredible offers from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers can bet $5 and get $200 in bonus bets. Guaranteed. That's guaranteed. Plus, all customers who bet $5 will get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV. Now is the best time to join FanDuel. It absolutely is. The app is easy to use, and you can be on everything from spreads to player props and more. So visit FanDuel.com Boston. Kick off the NFL season with an offer you won't want to miss. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. 21 plus and present in Massachusetts. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at FanDuel.com slash Sportsbook. Hope is here. MA.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSetsMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. NFL Sunday Ticket Offer ends 9 23 no refunds. Terms and embargoes apply. $100 off NFL Sunday Ticket, not YouTube TV youtube tv base plan required to watch youtube tv redemption requires a google account a current form of payment commercial use excluded subscription renews cancel anytime hated them
1: yeah hated, okay he everything about them hated <laughs> them they were them in detroit were just the asshole teams that you didn't like you know like you only played the lakers twice a year so it wasn't like you were to really think about the lakers much but the Celtics were in the same – they were both Atlantic Division teams and the freaking – they were so much better in the Nets. Like, so much better in the Nets. In fact, I remember every now and then a former Net would play on the Celtics and that would actually just burn you. Like, I remember mm-hmm. – I think Michael Ray Richardson might have had a cup of coffee with the Net with the Celtics and you're like, well, that sucks and I'll probably be good with the Celtics. It was just – I hated Bird, I hated Parrish. I hated Mikhail, I hated Danny Ains. I hated Jerry Seasting. I hated Dennis Johnson – Hated Casey Jones, hated all of them. And when they started sucking, I was probably a pretty happy guy because I just hated them. No offense.
4: They sucked for a curious. long while. So uh you yeah, got, you got your two cents.
1: Well now they're good again, you know. So
2: I, I am curious, just while we're on the subject, what do we think of the Nets Celtics trade that resulted in the restoration of Boston as a title team? A
1: monumentally awful trade for the Nets. I mean, that might be. I can't I don't think I could think of a worse actual trade in NBA history if you think about what that did to both franchises. And also like it wasn't like it was just weird. Like you were basically saying, all right, we have Brooke Lopez and we have uh Darren Williams as our point guard. So we're gonna fortify that with aging veterans. Like, that's not like saying, like, we have LeBron and Bosch, let's add three more guys. It's like saying we have two good NBA players. Let's add a bunch of aging guys to that. It didn't make any sense, and then it was a mm. first-time coach. Jason Kidd was a first. The whole thing was just such a shit show. That did not work out. New.
2: No. Mm. Um. So while we're still on the current, and then we'll move on. Um. What are your thoughts on the state of the Celtics Lakers rivalry now? Because it's a huge topic in the book and in the show. And I, I guess I'm curious with both teams at 17 banners apiece. What are your thoughts on kind of and and frankly with realistic chances to potentially hang another one in the near future. What are your thoughts on the state of Lakers Celtics?
1: Well I think what's cool about it is if you think about it, you don't really think Lakers Celtics during the season. Like it's not a in-season rivalry. Like people don't really talk about Lakers Celtics that much midway through a season, even if the Lakers are good, because they just don't play very often. They play twice a year. But I think it's always cool when it's a possibility. And when both teams make the playoffs Like this year, I never considered the Lakers a legit title contender. I just didn't, even when they were running in the playoffs. I never did, but I thought the Celtics were. And it is interesting watching the brackets when they get closer and closer and closer. And I don't think you can think of any other teams really like that. We we're like maybe Cleveland and Golden State a little bit because you know not that long ago. But it's really intriguing. And um, I I know it's not going to end well, but I really liked the Porzingis trade when it was made. I just like you got to shake this thing up. You just have to. I know it sucks getting rid of a guy like Marcus Scott, Marcus Smart, because of all the. He's a leader and he's the guts of the team, but like, if you look at sports history, those guys are relatively replaceable. And like, I like the trade, but then I also think Porzingis is probably going to end up playing forty-three games and hurting his foot in a blender or something. And, and the Lakers are legit. I think the Lakers are actually better positioned right now, to be honest, yeah. to make a finals run than the, than the Celtics.
2: That's very interesting. I mean, it seems like they've kind of been dancing around each other for the past couple of years. And I think everybody would love to see Lakers Celtics in the finals again. But this is fun. Mm. And the
1: NBA would love it because it's a guaranteed ratings bonanza.
3: I think people love it. it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into it. Then Lakers Celtics is a crucial topic in Showtime. Um, tell us, uh, walk us through kind of your process of writing that, like, how did that idea come up? And then what was it like actually like doing the legwork, trying to get this story together? Um,
1: I mean, it's kind of the same. I could be writing a Tupac book or a Lakers book or like a Brett Favre book. And it's always the same, which is the first thing you do is order every, every media guy from eBay, <laughs> make a file for every single person in all those media guides, not just, sorry, not just the, uh. Not just the, um, not just the stars, not even just the players, not even just the coaches, the administrators, the, you know, the massage therapists, the secretaries, everyone, and you build up this enormous library of people. And a lot of times, people make I think make the uh, mistake of thinking, oh, if you don't get Magic or you don't get Korean, I didn't get Magic or Korean for the book. Mm-hmm. They think, oh, wow, that's really hard. It's actually the opposite. Magic and Kareem are two guys who've been asked about the Lakers dynasty for a million times, but Wes Matthews hasn't. And Mike Smreck hasn't. And, you know, whoever you want to pick, even AC Green guys like that haven't. So for me, it's all about finding the people who are there, but who haven't been recognized 27,000 times, you know? Hmm. And that was my thing, like digging, and digging, and digging, and digging same with, and then you get to the other teams. Like, so when they played the Celtics in the finals, those times you start, you dig through a Celtics media guide and you try to find as many guys from the Celtics as possible. You want any of guys who are there and people who were part of the team and who were witness to the hellishness of it all. At the same time you build this library, like this is literally my Tupac library right here behind you. And like, Jeez. so for Lakers, I had this enormous library. And it wouldn't just be Laker books. It'd be Larry Bird's autobiography and Jack McCallum writing about the Celtics and Bob Ryan and Dan Shaughnessy and all those things. And you end up building these 8,000 libraries Um, and piecing it all together and then the other thing you do is you like print out like literally to the right of me these are some of my tupac articles but it's like i don't know if you can see like a pile of stuff so you build this clip collection and you dig through it and you it's basically a combination of original research plus old stuff finding little nuggets making it relevant um and this is why i have no life and I, i i like am always losing my mind because you become beyond obsessed with what you're working on to the point where you're just a mindless drone only thinking about Lakers, celtics
2: and so you have like a big stack of documents it seems like you've been reaching out to a lot of people for this book and we're doing so for your other books um i'm curious what is your balance as far as archival sources versus interview in this process because it seems like you use both
1: i do i mean i'm all about both i don't even know if there's a balance like i like my, I don't remember how many I interviewed for the Laker book. For the my last book was about Bo Jackson, and I interviewed seven hundred and twenty people, which is a record for me, right? And that's like, Jeez. so that's like, it's like you're not just calling. So, let's say you're writing about Bo Jackson, and the obvious thing is you call all his teammates. You want to find all his teammates, but you also be using archival materials, and maybe you're reading an article about him, and it might be about him buying his first house, and it'll say like Kansas City real estate agent Becky Fernandez sold him his house. Then you want to find Becky Fernandez and you call Becky Fernandez. Becky Fernandez might tell you, oh, you know, it's so crazy. When I was selling him his house, I recommended his gardener. His gardener is, you know, Barry Schmidt. You just call Barry Schmidt. Then you call Barry Schmidt. And like, so starting with the archival material leads you this way and this way and this way and this way and this way. And all of a sudden you just have this buffet of overwhelming material to work with.
2: That's cool. All right. So obviously. I would say it's not cool. I would say it's Uh the
1: nerdiest thing ever, but I appreciate your kind words.
2: Fair enough. I'm, I'm, yeah, trying, my best here. Here, I'm yeah. trying my best here, man. Um, so obviously, you know, Showtime is a great book, um, but I think I think it's fair to say that most people now know it in its TV incarnation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how did that kind of process to make it a series get started? It says on Wikipedia that Jim Hecht was uh, pretty heavily involved before Adam McKay or Max Bornstein kind of hopped in. So mm-hmm. tell us the backstory of like, how you got to meeting all of these people and how this kind of started to gestate from a book into a show.
1: So uh Jim Hecht was a at the time, he was he was a screenwriter who reached out to me. And when I Googled him, his big movie, his big screenplay was Ice Age 2. And I was <laughs> like, Ice Age 2. But he was really like persistent and also he was very complimentary and he clearly loved the book, loved the Lakers. So um 2014 Easter. Jim Heck comes to my house to eat with my family. He's like, I can come by. And we're both Jewish. So it wasn't like we had family dinner. For days, so that was it. I said, all right, come to my family dinner. And Jim shows up. I knew almost nothing about him. And he came to my house. We still joke about this with three things. He came with a a block of saran Wrap baker's chocolate. He came with a big ass tomato. And he came with a bottle of um, imitation wine drink. And my wife is like, who the fuck is this guy? And I'm like, I don't know. He's interested in the book. And um, he was just a really nice guy. And he just had this vision for it as a screenplay. And I wasn't getting any bites on it at the time. And I was kind of naive. So I didn't even ask for money. I was like, all right, whatever, take a year. And and nothing ever happened. Like, nothing ever happened. Every now and then he'd call me. Him and his partner, Jason Schumann, his, his business partner, used to always say, we want to make you the male Candace Bushnell. Bushnell <laughs> is that her name? Sex in the city. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know who that is, but okay. And I never, I just never bought it. I was cynical. And then years later, he's like, uh, Adam McKay wants us wants to meet with us. And I, honest to God, my reaction was, I don't know who the fuck that is. I don't know that <laughs> So I Google Adam McKay. I pr- probably why I'm waiting in his driveway for Jim. And I see who he is, and that's cool. And we go meet with him, and he's very nice, and he, I love the book, and blah blah blah. I think it'd be great. And I'm like, okay, but this isn't going to happen. Because I'm just like, honestly, I'm a Northeastern Jewish guy, and we are raised to be pessimistic. Like, it is in our DNA that we are required. Right. <laughs> worst case scenario. It's always a worst case scenario. What is what is the worst thing that can happen? That's probably what's going to happen. That's in my dad, my grandparents, so it's me. So I'm like, well, this is never going to happen. And then Jim started, he's like, no, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. And then you start seeing stuff like Adam McKay. I mean, no, excuse me, John C. Riley signed up to play so-and-so in Sally Field and adrian brody and then they start making it and you're still like i don't know i don't know maybe it's cool maybe and then the show's coming out and i'm at this premiere party for the show based on my book and i'm like this is the craziest shit ever and i really do mean it people are like is it a dream come true and i'm like it's not a dream come true because all i want to do is be a sports illustrator writer and cover baseball so everything since then has been this big cherry on top and this is one of the biggest cherries ever it's just phenomenal so that's what happened
2: All right. uh, Last question before I hand things off to Justin. Um, So uh, the book is Showtime, but the uh, sorry, the TV series is Winning Time, Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. How did that name change come about? And did you sign off on that or did HBO just do that?
1: I would say it wasn't my call at all. (laughs) The weird thing is there's another book called Winning Time about the Lakers that's out there. And i'm <laughs> like not only you're changing the name after buying the rights to my book but you're changing it to the name of another book <laughs> but then like i mean i kind of understood it it's hbo they didn't want to maybe have this conflict with showtime the weird thing is now hbo's app is called i mean streaming services max, max and there is a cinemax out there so i don't know um ultimately what i know is the check's always clear it's been a dream come true it's helped book sales my wife my kids and i all have had cameos in the show I've made a lot of really great friends and contacts with it in regards to Tupac research. It's given me a remarkable amount of cred. Like instead of just saying I'm this guy, I also say I'm also a producer on the HBO show winning time. And that's like, even though it's kind of a preposterous thing, it's a pretty decent call. So winning time, Showtime. I don't think, honest God, I, I don't think people care that much about names. I honestly don't. I think after a while you just watch a show or don't watch a show. So I don't even think about it.
2: Fair enough. All right, JQ, your turn. Okay, as a fellow uh, child
4: of the 1980s who has written something very long and involved in my PhD dissertation, uh, one of the things that really interested me about the version that I've been watching on uh, TV is how, and we can talk about this a little bit more a little bit later, how it is a dramatization, uh, which is definitely irked some of the people involved uh i wanted to talk to you specifically about the book first was that also a dramatization or was it like really close to the wire
1: oh the book was a journalism reporting fully reporting there's no dramatization in the book no okay cool so
4: you didn't write the screenplay but you were consulted like how did that work like what level of control did you have uh how did you feel about the dramatization like What was the process like for you?
1: All right. So basically, a lot of times when people sell out their books and their books are optioned, you know, they're given a check. They say, Thanks a lot. You can come to set one time and take your photo with this star and move on. Right. And this has been the exact opposite of that. This has been phenomenal from the beginning. They've been gracious and cool. They send me every script. They let me uh they asked my opinion on casting for season two, like different things like that. It's been amazing. I'm not in the writer's room. I've never asked to be in the writer's room. Not a TV writer, like it's not what I do, you know. Um, and it's a very interesting question because I don't know if you guys are like this, but I'm a horrible audience for sports TV and movies. Horrible. I always use, I've been saying this a lot, and it's really true. Like, I think Moneyball is an excellent movie. I do. But I was a baseball writer at Sports Illustrated during that period, and Scott Hadterberg did not turn around those Oakland A's. Like, they had three Cy Young war candidates in the starting rotation who never get mentioned in the entire movie, right? They had Eric Chavez playing third base. Eric Chavez was a 30 home run, hundred RBI guy. They had Miguel Tejada at shortstop and MVP. Like I can't watch that movie and just be like, Oh, this is great. Like I'm like this same with the Jackie Robinson movie 42. I'm like, and the worst is we are Marshall, which actually has led to my hair falling out because I can't, that movie just, you know, like it's a serious issue. People died in a plane crash, and you're just like playing fast and loose because it's fun. So I sh- I suck. I'm su- I suck, and I have really had to adjust to this. Like I just have. I'd had to adjust. It is a dramatization. It is not a documentary. They do do stuff that is interpretive. For example, in the first season, first episode, Norm Nixon and Magic Johnson go to a white party, and they play one on one not a white party like white people like a white party everyone wears white mm-hmm. and it didn't happen right and when I first read it I was like oh I don't I don't know but I kind of get it like what they're trying to do and I actually talked to the actor who played Jack McKinney in season one is a really really well-known playwright named Tracy Letts and I had Tracy on my podcast and I asked him about it I was like are you bothered at all by sort of Jerry West should we be bothered at all by Jerry West being upset by the show and he goes not even remotely he's like real life is not interesting that's just a reality real life is not interesting and if we just did you know shows like this that are real life well you'd watch jerry west pull up in his parking lot to the forum and then he'd go to the bathroom and then he'd shake some hands and they'd filed some papers and like it doesn't work that way and i've accepted it and maybe i'm a hypocrite it's a fair point if someone wants to say i'm a hypocrite because i do get paid for the show and it certainly helps my book but I've just had to accept it. That's all you can do. It's not easy. It's not, but I've just had to accept it.
4: There's a thing in anthropology called the crisis of representation, and it deals with a lot of what you would expect, the representation of the people you're dealing with and trying to represent in your work. And you know, in my own work, I've had to hide the identity of some of the people I've worked with for political reasons, because it could be retribution for the stuff that they shared with me. And that kind of sat with me a little weirdly at first, but like I, I grew in this very similar and parallel way to kind of see the wisdom of it. But then like when you were mentioning like the Marshall situation that, that immediately drew my mind to one of the more recent examples in the series where things aren't exactly as how they were on a really fraught subject, which is Larry Bird's father appearing while he was in college, which by then he was dead from suicide, but they also handled that, that uh, situation like in a really thoughtful manner so i don't know did you when when you saw that did did you feel like they did that particular scene justice because it was admittedly a really touchy scene
1: i have mixed feelings on all this stuff just as far not just with the show like in general i have because like when you write books you can't do that like you can't do that you wouldn't do that you wouldn't even think to do it right it wouldn't even be a thing um i mean it's just a different medium Like, that's being honest. I'm actually being honest. It's just a different medium. It's not my medium and it's not my world. Like, do I like that stuff from a journalistic standpoint? Of course not. But it's not journalism, it's storytelling. And I mean, it would be weird. Like, to me, it would be all right. Like, a perfect example is the blind side, everything going on with the blind side right now in that movie. And like, that kid was already at that high school in real life. That kid was already at that high school when he met that family. That kid was already an excellent football player when he met that family. That woman did not, the little kid did not have to take ketchup bottles and show him how to play football. And I'm so disturbed by that movie in hindsight. I was at the time, but I really am now thinking about it, how they basically made up everything about this kid. I feel like at least in the defense of the show, it did happen. They fucked with the time, period. Is that cool? I guess it depends on your... I could see it either way, you know, I just, I could see it either way.
4: Yeah. I don't know if there's really a way around that either too, because as you were alluding, you know, real life is boring. And even if you are representing people fairly faithfully, it's not uncommon for them, even when you have a recording of them saying a certain thing, for example, for them to push back and deny that it actually happened. So it's a really hard needle to thread. Uh, I don't know if I have a good landing spot for that because it is such a, a difficult topic, but what I think I will do is hand this off to Cameron to talk about the rest of the series on some maybe less uh, anxiety inducing topics.
1: I want to make one point about that though, because I actually think it's a a question. I think it's a great question. And I thanks honestly, like what happens is like generally when people promote stuff and like actors come on, so there's an actor strike right now. So there's no actors here. And you get someone like me. I'm like, you know, This is everything, books, movies, TVs, whatever. They get people and they prepare you how you should answer these questions and blah, blah, blah. If they ask you this, make sure to sidestep it, blah, blah, blah. I think that's a hell of a question. And I actually think like, it is a fair, again, the we are Marshall test. Like as an example, they're on the plane, the plane's about to crash. The coach says to the team, we are, and they all go Marshall, right? Well, they didn't do that chant for years later, right? And it's a small little thing, but like, it bothered me. It really did bother me that like, you're talking about a plane crash that changed the changed the lives of so many people. You're talking about the ramifications of with people aren't born, people don't get married, like families forever change everything about it, the shrapnel of that. And to just come along and fuck around with that is kind of crazy. So I don't know, I guess we all justify what we do. Like, that's one thing we all As a journalist, I justify my existence all the time when I will interview someone in a really uncomfortable situation and have to ask myself, is this really, am I doing any good with this or am I just being an asshole and doing my job? I just think that's one of those things we all have to deal with and it's really, there's no great answer to it.
4: I like how you put that. Uh, the, The personal introduction of ethics is something that I think is not given enough attention in modern media at any level, whether we're talking journalism, winning time, or I don't know. Uh, the coverage of, you know, the incident that just happened in Florida with with, uh, the white supremacist, which we don't need to talk about any more than I just did. Uh, But I don't know, very heavy, heavy turn, but I think it is definitely worth something for us to keep talking about in terms of the ethics of representation, even in something fairly lighthearted as sport because sport touches on the rest of our real lives as we have been, you know, touching on. And yeah. Why just wait? I
1: saw the other day something, I know I know this isn't about this, but like, mm-hmm. I saw the other day when there was a political rally and Trump was mocking Chris Christie for being fat, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like, how many people in that audience are overweight? And somehow or another, they're able to laugh and justify him mocking someone who's overweight. And I just think we all sort of find a way to justify whatever we need to justify. You know, mm-hmm. it's a weird human thing we do. Maybe it's a survival mechanism. I don't know. But it's very strange.
4: It is.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if you've heard Trump is 6'3", 215. I mean, that guy's built like oh, yeah. a linebacker, evidently. Yes. Um, the crazy
1: thing is I'm 6'3", about 200. I'm almost 6'3". I'm like 6'2 and a half. I mean, it is preposterous when you're near those dimensions to actually look at him and think he's, he's those dimensions. I was like, he's got to be closer to 315 than 215. Oh, he's got to. Yeah.
3: Uh,
1: there was but something- handsome man. He's a dashingly handsome man, and that's what he is.
0: I mean, he, he, his hair, it's the envy of- Glorious. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well. So, Jeff, I don't know if you know this. So, I'm a history teacher. Alex is a history teacher. and Justin is a doctor of anthropology. So, how stories get told is not incidental on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why sometimes our podcast comments are like, "These guys are so nerdy. What the hell is going on?" Um. But I mean, the I nice stick- ones. Yeah, the nice ones. I'm gonna stick with that because, and maybe you don't know the answer to this. I I, I don't know that Larry Bird has spoke much about. You know, the incident question, his, his father's suicide. Um, save, you know, an interview with, I found in the 90s where he said it was tough. I think I handled it well. And t- he doesn't elaborate. Do you know if he was CC'd on the second season much?
1: Oh, no, definitely. I don't I don't think at all, actually. That's my guess. I know that way. Time out. I will say I know the show tried to reach out to these different figures. Sure. Um, I don't know the specifics of Bird. I just don't. This is the time when I say, look, I just wrote the book. It's, I yeah. actually said to someone the other day, I have like the best of both worlds. If you guys say, I love the show, I can say, oh, thanks so much. And if you say, I hate the show, I can say, I just wrote the book. So in this regard, <laughs> I just wrote the book. I do not know the answer to that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I will leave that uh, ethical parenthetical, like hanging out there. I don't really know. Like, I don't either. I, I thought it was a, an arresting episode. I'm sure it was meaningful to a lot of people, but maybe for the Bird family, to, they could have any number of reads. I guess a little less serious, but but still worth wondering is Jerry West's approach to the show. Um, maybe you have, maybe you have insight that you can't share, but he threatened to pursue legal action. Pursued legal action against the show. He didn't like how he was characterized. Although Jason Clark, the man who plays Jerry West in the show, is brilliant. I mean, he's a huge bright spot on the show.
1: Um, he th- he threatened to go to the Supreme Court. Which yeah, <laughs> was a little bit bonkers. Actually, someone said, boy, he showed us how not crazy he is by threatening to take this to the Supreme Court. Um, Here's the thing about Jerry West. I think the depiction is pretty on. I get it. It's dialed up a little bit. There's no doubt about it. But if you are right, one of the best sports books ever written is Jerry West's autobiography, autobiography
2: mm-hmm. called
1: West by West or West on West. I think West by West. It's ridiculously good. It's insightful. It's amazing. And he speaks of his own manic behavior, of his own sort of insane intensity of breaking a golf club out of anger. You know, like it's all there in the book. So I always say like the um, I think the writers on the show, they do not have journalistic backgrounds. Right. And unlike me, they're not really used to dealing with athletes when athletes get mad at you. And I have dealt with that a lot. And I think they were surprised by the backlash and maybe caught a little off foot by the backlash. And I've said to them multiple times and I've said in interviews multiple times, that I always say to them, like, you have to expect that. Like you're Jerry West, you're home, you're watching your show, this TV show. There's a guy in there, an actor who looks like you, who's playing you. And you're like, why didn't fucking say that? Or that wasn't like, you have to understand it. And then on the flip side, I do think people like Jerry West and Magic Johnson and Kareem, if they're watching the show are a little bit missing the level of homage this is to that era and to those teams. Like this is homage. This is straight out homage to them. And I mean, I get, I get why someone would be upset, but I also think like, if you watch it, I think it's a love letter to Jerry West. I really do. I'm not just saying that. I think it's a love letter to Jerry
0: West. You know what? So I, my theory is that the showrunners, people who love sports, it is a love letter to Jerry West because you know, what he accomplished, you know, where he's going next. You know how brilliant he is but like I watched the first season with my girlfriend who is not a huge basketball fan. So yeah. for example, I was getting tired of the magic and cookie phone calls early enough. Cause we knew where it was going and she yeah. didn't know that they end up together. So yeah. she was really dialed in. Whereas as someone who knows what happens next, I was like, all right, got it. Let's keep it moving. If you didn't have, I bet everyone on this call thinks very, very highly of Jerry West. If you were coming as a Jerry West noob, He's somewhere between manic and derpy in the show. So maybe that's where the real life Jerry Fair. West is coming from. And yeah. maybe the showrunners don't pick up on that. But- it is interesting. Wait, because I was, I
1: watched recently, there was a uh, six part or five part documentary on Hulu about Tupac called Dear Mama. Yeah, And I, I'm working on a Tupac book. So I was riveted by this documentary. And my wife was kind of confused. She was like, because she's not a big hip hop fan, not huge. And it kept going back and forth to Tupac's mother, Feeney, who was in the Black Panthers. And it got kind of jumbled. And I was like, this is fantastic. And she's like, ah, I don't really like it. And I do think it, I don't know how much showrunners, screenwriters, et cetera, I just don't know the answer to this, taking into account that we're going to have various degrees of uh, knowledge observing our show and we should cater to this. I just don't know how that works or what they're thinking.
0: No, I don't know either. I mean, I think I kind of, I don't want to get off topic too much. I kind of have that concern with Oppenheimer. Um, both do you watch me- it? It made, me, yeah, it made me feel like it insulted my intelligence and that it knew that I was a history teacher. Um, hey, so, I just
1: want to say, I'm happy to have this real quick. I was with a friend last night. I was with two friends last night. we were both much wiser than I am. And they were bored by Oppenheimer. And I was like, I'm so happy you say that. Because I was a history major in college. I'm a history buff. I was bored. Like, I was bored after. I thought that movie should have been an hour shorter. And I know that's- yeah. And like, everyone's like raving about it. And sometimes you wonder if people rave about stuff because they're just supposed to rave about
0: it versus they genuinely loved it.
2: I thought After. the first half was gripping and the second yeah. half really petered off. Yeah.
0: Well, I have, I have the opposite concern. And then we'll go back to basketball, which is the first half was gripping, but we knew the bomb was going to work. So there's no, there were no stakes. Right. And then yeah. the second half I actually loved, it was like Aaron Sorkin; it was a crime drama but you were so tired after watching a two hour movie that I was like, yeah. we're really going to watch an episode of the West Wing now? What is this? Um, so anyways, that's Oppenheimer. For we did. I just want to say we did the
1: Barb and Hopper. Barb and Hopper?
0: Oh, I loved Barbie. And I thought Barbie was a better fucking movie. Oh, big time. Yeah. I thought it, I thought it really handled my intelligence well. It just was like, hey, this is what it is. Buckle up. I thought it was great. Yeah. Whereas Oppenheimer, they were like the Germans think it's hydrogen, but we know it's nitrogen, and then they like, draw something on the chalkboard. And I was like, "All right, thanks, <laughs> thanks, movie." Okay, right. anyways, um, so Jerry West's depiction we think is probably true to life. Some people haven't loved it. Quincy Isaiah as magic has been a revelation. I know, again, you don't you can't claim that, but any thoughts on uh, Quincy Isaiah or just like any other portrayals in the show?
1: Man, I'll tell you a few things. First of all, this I really mean, Kareem Magic Bird. They could have cast that for the next 100 years, and I don't think they would have found any better guys than those three. I just think it's a trio. Yeah. Quincy, his real name is Quincy Crosby. He goes by Quincy Isaiah. He um, he was a football offensive lineman at Kalamazoo College with almost wow. no acting experience whatsoever.
2: Mm-hmm. Very
1: young. you know. No, I think he did local theater, maybe community theater, but that's it. And it was like needle on a haystack, awesome. Kareem is Dr. Solomon Hughes, who played center at Cal and he's not that much young, he's about 42 you know but ha- he's also like he's a phd he's very intellectual and he's really smart and it's all cliche but it's true like he has his kareem like
0: yeah that's perfect
1: about him that's really good and they're both awesome like they're both like really good hangs like they're just good people to hang out with and sean patrick small the original bird was bo burnham the comedian yeah. originally cast as bird and he dropped out and sean patrick small is a um He's really a writer, and he lives about an hour north of me. He's from Northern California. And there's a Seth Davis book. Seth is a former colleague of mine at SI. He wrote a book about um, Magic Bird and and, uh, Michigan State-Indiana State game. And Sean had optioned that because he wanted to write it as a screenplay, and he wanted to play Bird in the adaptation that he wrote. Bo Burnham drops out. Somehow, Sean finds out that they're casting for Bird. He reads via Zoom, I think, on like a Friday and he gets cast on a Monday. About six weeks ago, he's a great guy. About six weeks ago, he shows up at my... I play pickup basketball every uh, Saturday morning. And I've been bugging him to come down and play. And he shows up. He's In real life, he's six four. He played high school ball, good player. Probably college intramurals, all that stuff. And he shows up and he tells me that he shoots just like Bird now. Because in training <laughs> for the show, they remastered his shot. So he actually does. He has the exact same high release point as Larry Bird. And he's a really good player. So he shows up shooting like bird. And, uh, you know, they just like, they really got it. Like they really, really, really got it with those three. And it would have been, it would have been predictable if they found like the hot young African-American actor to play Magic Johnson. You know what I mean? Like, you know, whoever Michael B. Jordan is 10 years younger. Like we got the, oh, we got this guy. He was in this show and this show and this show but you look at him and you're always thinking, Oh, that's Michael B. Jordan. And like Quincy just oozes. He oozes this thing. He has a really beautiful smile. He has this thing about him. That's like cool and confident. And like, they just somehow nailed it. It's, it's insane.
0: I mean, it's like I said, I have to jump. First of all, it, like the show is carefully well-made, but the source material is great. Like Dr. Bus was a character. Magic Johnson is, is a character. Like it, it just works. Um, Okay, a couple kitchen sick things and then we'll let you go. Just while we're on casting, Devon Nixon plays his dad, Norm Nixon. Yeah. How did that come about? And have you talked to uh, Devon about playing his dad? Yeah.
1: yeah, oh yeah. Well, so um little known fact, Devon was the played Whitney Houston's son in the bodyguard. So he's a um, oh. he was a child actor. He was in a bunch of stuff. He looked at his IMDB page. And hmm. actually I was I was with him the first my wife and my kids and I were all in we all been in the show. And the mm-hmm. day I think my kid shot, uh, Devon was shooting the same scene. He was in that scene, actually. And um, the funny thing is, I don't think, like, I think I think his dad has been insanely hands-off about it all. Like, kind of like, you do you. Because I think it's the only, I think it's probably the gateway to a healthy father-son relationship, you know, is like to not have your dad overlording you. <laughs> um, and the thing, I remember when I wrote the book, I went, because Norm Nixon is married to Debbie Allen, the former... I don't know if you guys are a little young, but Debbie Allen was in Fame, and she's a famous actress, and she's been in a ton of stuff. Okay, and she runs a dance studio, and I interviewed Norm at the dance studio, and I met Debbie Allen. Debbie Allen was a childhood crush of mine. So I was like, oh, Debbie Allen, <laughs> and Norm Nixon, But Debbie Allen, what? Um, and I just think that the whole thing for Devon has been like his dad has kind of stayed out of it, and he's done it. He's also in Snowfall, Snowfall right now. Devon Nixon, the guys. From my, he's. I mean, it's a big statement. He might be the best actor in the show. Like he is. Everyone talks about how preposterously talented he is as an actor. He just, he oozes that thing. Yeah. Like when you see him on screen, he really like, I hate to be this bullshit Hollywood nonsense, but like you do keep your eyes on him when he's on the screen. He kind of has some sparks coming off him.
0: And the first uh, episode, two episodes where you meet him, it's like, oh, they're going to use him as a keel to like tell the story. But it's like, no, he, he oh. deserves all the oxygen he gets in the room. It's really 100%. good.
1: He's great. It's great.
0: Um, like, shut up
4: quick shout out his dad has a podcast on our network I can't remember its name right now because I'm an excellent plugger but just uh go look for it on the NBA history and legends channel on CLNS media
1: I think it might be with Michael Cooper actually I think it might be two of your enemies I think it yeah. might be Cooper. yeah
0: I think you're right about that because mm-hmm. we th- there is a lot of synergy between the Lakers and the Celtics when it comes to podcast making yeah um tell us a story if you your cameo how'd you do
1: well, I, so I technically have two cameos, but the, my one, I had one in the pilot episode. My wife and I both were shot the same day. My wife ended up getting a laugh. Like a, she actually laughs. She plays the Chicago Bulls administrative assistant and I'm just a reporter. So you see my back. But this uh, this year, I'm in episode five. I play reporter at a press conference. I get to ask three questions. Uh, John C. Riley is Dairy bus calls at me and actually calls me Jeff. Like
4: <laughs>
1: nice little thing, you know? Yeah. Um, I was super excited. I got there very early to the Warner lot in LA. You do uh wardrobe, which is cool. You have your own trailer with your name on it, which is cool. They do makeup. I had a wig and everything put on. Cool. Craft services. Cool. I go to this. I have time to kill The set of Abbott elementary is right next door. So I'm walking around the school buses. Wow. Around. Very cool. Cool. And that's time to film the scene. And they take you over to the set and I'm a reporter at a press conference. And I ha- I'm literally not joking had my lines written on my hand because I was so nervous. They're like three lines. I could recite them now for you. Like they're not hard, you know, but like, so they shoot it. I do it. They shoot it again. I do it again. Shoot again. I do it again. They shot that scene. I think I had as 104 times total. I was there from like 11 in the morning to about nine at night, maybe. It was dreadful. It was so boring and hot and itching. My head started itching. This is the worst part. My head starts itching. And I'm like, I don't know. I get home and I have like bumps all over my head. And I actually asked another cast member, I don't know what's going on. If I'm having allergic reactions, she's like, take some Benadryl. I take Benadryl. Next morning I wake up, my head is just enormous. It's like a pumpkin. And I go to urgent care and I'm having an allergic reaction to the wig glue that they used (laughs) on my head. So basically I was there for a hundred gazillion hours. It was boring as all anything. I had an allergic reaction. I had to go to urgent care, but it's one of the coolest things ever to have as a little clip in my life, you know. So,
0: yeah, that show Um, Why yeah. do? They, why so many takes?
1: They're just meticulous as you can imagine. Different angles. We have to use this camera. We used to have that camera. We're going to shoot with this. They do some of the uh, shoot uh, footage with a Super Eight, which is like the old fashioned yeah, camera. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a grind. It was a grind. Like it was not. I could lie to you guys. Like a lot of people I think would promote a show and be like, oh, it's the best. It was the worst. It sucked. <laughs> it was horrible. But the people are lovely and professional and cool. And I'm glad I have it. But I have no. I remember, I've told this story a few times. Years and years ago, I did a story for TV Guide. And I went to a, the set of a TV show called Love Monkey. And it was uh, like Tom Cavanaugh, Jason Priestley from 902 when I was in the show. And I remember interviewing Jason Priestley after watching them shoot the scene like 30 times. And I said, I'm going to be honest with you. That seemed kind of boring. And he goes, brother, you have no idea. And I feel like now, (laughs) 20 years after Love Monkey, I have my own idea. Yeah, you got to follow up. You got to go find him. Yeah, find Priest and be like, you were right, buddy.
0: All right, Jeff Perlman, I'm going to give you three quick questions and we'll get you out of here. How's that? Um, Just to justify you coming on a Celtics podcast, Rick Fox was consulted um, for the show and obviously bridges the gap between the Celtics and Lakers. Um, Any conversations with Rick Fox? Any Rick Fox stories? I love Rick Fox.
1: So um, first of all, it's weird because when this is this thing, at first thing that entered my head, when Kobe Bryant, when news first came out that Kobe Bryant had crashed, like first, first, first news, someone texted me. Mm-hmm. And I was in a, in a corner bakery writing and someone texted me, did you hear about Kobe? And I said, what? She wrote, uh, died in a plane crash. And I was like, what? A helicopter crash? One of the first people I texted was Rick Fox to see what he knew and actually the initial reports right after that where rick fox was on the helicopter
0: yeah i remember that
1: he, he ended up not being without he was one of the first guys i texted rick is a really nice guy and he um hated rick patino i mean he's not <laughs> alone in that obviously but he felt i remember because because i ended up writing um i wrote a follow-up book called three ring circus about the shakobi lakers and obviously mm-hmm. he went from the south to lakers and he basically said I mean, in not so many words, Rick Pitino was a dishonest piece of shit, you know, and that he didn't keep his word and blah, 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 blah. So, uh,
0: yeah. That sounds familiar. I keep getting notifications
1: yeah, on I, my phone about something familiar. Yeah. He's, uh, Rick is a really cool guy. He's super, you him. Know, you know, my wife was like, we went to a screening and Rick Fox was there and my wife was like, Oh, Rick Fox. And I was like, you can shut up now. You know, like he still has like that dashing yeah. cool thing that, uh, you know.
0: Well, he used to live um, in Watertown, which is a suburb in Boston. And so he used to be like a little bit of a man about- around town. I think he lives in California now.
1: Um, Very nice guy. Legit nice guy.
0: Yeah. now high on my list of, I- I'm sure you've had this experience where most of the time you play it cool when you meet people you look up to. Rick Fox is someone I don't know that I do a good job with that.
4: you
1: like my wife going like, oh, Mr. Fox.
0: Hey. I mean. That's Okay. I mean, Look at him. He's aged like a, a fine wine, a fine, non-alcoholic wine. Um, this is a selfish question. Do you know Neil best personally? I do not. I hmm. uh, thought maybe because of the news day. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thought I'd ask. Okay. Uh, you have a podcast. Is that correct? I do. Plug the product.
1: Oh, it's called Two Writers Singing Yang. It's a different journalist every week. Comes out usually uh, Monday evenings. And uh, I just love talking shop. Like I love talking shop. I don't make money for it. I- produce on my own just gets a couple of thousand listens every week it's not huge but like uh I had Adam McKay on I've had Jimmy Kimmel on like I've had some big guests um uh, and then mainly it's like I had a Dan Shaughnessy on you know um mm. <laughs> for good or bad I know but I you know different writers and different mediums and I just dig talk and writing I really do well
0: that's perfect my last question was going to be who's a one guest past or present that would be like absolute tops for you I mean, here, let me, I'll let you think while I do our outro. How's that? Okay. So this episode of the Celtics Lab podcast was brought to you by FanDuel, the exclusive wagering partner of the CLNS media network. We've been talking with Jeff Perlman. He is a author 10 times over nine times on the New York times bestseller list. I think I have that right. Maybe it's, yeah. it's 10. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and or you can say the accurate number, which is I think seven.
0: Or seven or several. Um, we do history. We don't do math on this podcast. All right. Mr. Perlman. Um, who would be the cream of the crop as podcast guest?
1: Yeah, I just thought of this. When I was in college at the University of Delaware, my uh, the guy who changed my life in many ways was a professor named Bill Fleischman. And he was a columnist for the New York Daily News. Uh, excuse me, Philadelphia Daily News. And he became a very, very close friend, guide, et cetera. And not to get depressing, he died about five years ago. And I never had him on because it was very early in the pie. And uh, that's one of my regrets. So if I could go back in time, I would get Bill Fleischman on.
0: Oh, wow, I love that! Oh, wow. I'm getting a little emotional. Thank you for sharing that, Jeff. Um, okay, well, Jeff, anything you want people to check out, check out twice, be on the lookout for?
1: Uh, I have my Bo my uh, Bo Jackson book called The Last Folk Cure comes out in paperback, I think next week or two weeks. And uh, yeah, just I don't know. Watch the show. I would say this, honest to God, this is what I'll tell you. I want the show to survive. It is really hard times actors can't promote writers can't promote it's basically up to people like me the people nobody wants to hear from to promote and this show needs views it's an expensive show it's a it's a great show but it needs views. Really if you could just encourage honest to god i would if you know if your listeners and fans or whatever could just support the show even though they're celtic fans there's hardcore larry bird there's a lot of larry bird love episode the, the last few episodes a lot of celtics chunky celtics so if you could just watch a show i'd be so appreciative
0: yeah whoever's playing red auerbach has also nailed oh, it i go ticklish yeah oh. Just saying
4: sure
1: real... my age geez <laughs> Just saying real quick my uh like they had a premiere party last year for the first season it was the best party i've ever been to it's probably a better night than my wedding <laughs> and not only that my wife wasn't even in town she was out of town so i took my kids and my kids are both teenagers and we go to this party and it's it's the greatest thing ever. It is the greatest thing ever. They send a car for us. They have a red carpet to walk. Oh, there's Jason Segel. My daughter loves Jason Siegel. Can you take a picture of me? Sure. The whole thing. And my daughter goes, uh, they had a cigar rolling station with winning time labels on them. So it's like wow. we're at the premiere of a TV show based on a book I wrote. And they have a cigar station. My daughter goes, we should smoke cigars. And I'm like, <laughs> first dad of the year moment. We should smoke cigars. So me, my daughter, my son, who was probably a sophomore in high school at the time, all try. my son was like, I don't want to. I was like, you're trying a cigar, damn it. We all took off of a cigar with the actor who plays Red Auerbach, Michael Chiklis. Oh, man. Very cool. And I wow. feel like it's okay to be a bad parent every once in a while. In fact, sometimes being a bad parent yeah, makes I you a mean, good parent. Sure
4: yeah no totally particularly know, if you have I, a chance to smoke a red red hourback cigar or at least the closest you can get
0: to
1: that we all snorted coke together is that bad or oh
0: yes that... yes yes of course it's just different it's just different there's no good or bad
1: strokes are difficult.
0: <laughs> all right on that unbelievable anecdote jeff perlman congrats on all the success um thanks for spending time with us this is great and Dude. yeah give us a ring when alex plays bass in a successful band that's good enough for us to have you come talk about tupac Done. Yeah, let's
1: do it. All right. Thank you guys so much. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for right.
0: your time. Take it easy. Thanks, everyone.
3: Like and subscribe. We'll see you later. Adios.